0: is quiet in the camp of Quintus Cicero. You see, word hadn't reached Quintus's camp yet of any legions being wiped out or of Gauls gathering in force. Things are quiet in Quintus's camp, and that's probably the way he liked it. You see, Quintus wasn't a soldier. In fact, he's only serving in Gaul for the sake of his more famous brother and their family. Quintus's goal in being in Gaul was to bring together his brother, Marcus Tullius Cicero, the famous orator, the famous writer and statesman, to bring him closer to Julius Caesar. So Quintus is there, he's doing his duty to his brother and his family, but make no mistake, Quintus does not like army life. In letters to his brother, Quintus will even complain about the rigors of army life. Quintus doesn't even seem to find army life that interesting. And it isn't that Quintus is unfocused. Quintus has lots of focus. It's just that Quintus has other interests, you might say. Like his more famous brother, Quintus is far more an intellectual than a soldier. In fact, Quintus had even recently written to his older brother to let him know that as Quintus was moving his legion into winter quarters, he had written four tragedies in just 16 days. Now that's focus. Just not focus directed on his military duties. And since Quintus doesn't like the rigors of military life and probably prefers the peace and quiet of winter camp to write tragedies, we can imagine that winter camp suits Quintus far more than the active life of campaigning. So Quintus is enjoying his peace and quiet. He is writing letters to friends and family. He is no doubt penning more tragedies. When one day, like a lightning bolt out of the clear blue sky, the peace of Quintus's winter camp is shattered. Hordes of rough-looking barbarians, as Quintus would have seen them, descend upon his camp 60,000 strong, as Caesar says. Although we should say that, as always, Caesar's numbers are probably exaggerated. This Gallic force, which we talked about in our last episode, was a coalition of Belgic tribes, the Eberones, the Nervii, and a number of dependents of the Nervii. And much like the attack on the camp of Sabinus and Cotta that we talked about in last episode some of Quintus's men are caught outside the camp collecting wood when suddenly the Belgic cavalry sweeps down upon them and cuts them off from the camp. The allied Gallic or Belgic force then surrounds Quintus's Roman camp and begins to assault it. The Romans in response grab their arms and man the walls And only by the skin of their teeth managed to repel the assault that first day in what will become a siege. And as the first day's siege progresses, Quintus Cicero will try to send several messengers out of the camp to make it to Caesar. He even promises these messengers great rewards to any of them that can get through the enemy lines and to Caesar. That's how desperate things are looking. But all of these messengers are captured by the enemy Gauls. So no help will be forthcoming anytime soon for Quintus. The first day of the siege then ends and nighttime comes, but night will bring no rest for the Romans. That night, under Quintus Cicero's command, the Romans construct 120 towers along the walls of their camp— using wood that they had previously collected for that purpose and just hadn't had a chance to build these towers yet. I'm sure they thought they would have had days or weeks to build these towers, and seeing that they're under attack now, they build them all in one single night. The next day, the sun rises and day two of the siege on Quintus' camp begins. This time, the Gallic army attacks in even greater numbers. They even end up filling in the Roman defensive ditch around the camp in an attempt to storm the walls. Despite these greater numbers, though, and their attempts to fill in the Roman ditch, again, the Romans are able to push the Gauls back and save their camp. Now, day after day, this pattern continues, of the Gauls massing and attacking Quintus's winter camp, and the Romans just barely managing to push them back and save their camp. And just like the first night, every other night the Romans seem to have no time to rest. Every night they spend their time preparing the camp for the assault they know is going to come the next day. Caesar says not even the sick and wounded are spared from this work. Caesar says, and I quote, Whatever was needed for the next day's fighting was prepared by night. They, meaning the Romans, made ready large numbers of stakes charred at the point and many javelins of the type used for fighting on walls. The towers were lined with planks, and battlements and parapets of wickerwork attached. Quote. And overseeing all of this construction on the winter camp is the tragedy writer himself, Quintus Cicero. Quintus had no intention of allowing himself and his legion to become a tragedy story themselves. Quintus may have preferred to be writing plays, but that didn't mean that he would neglect his duty or neglect the men that were his responsibility to protect. Quintus Cicero was in poor health, but Caesar says that he worked relentlessly alongside his troops, day and night, until eventually his soldiers actually pressured him to get some rest because they were worried about him. Now, that's the way Caesar puts it. Of course, historians have had different interpretations of this story over the years. Let's keep in mind that Quintus's brother Marcus in Rome is a key political ally of Caesar's. So whatever Quintus does, Caesar is likely to paint it in the best light possible. So with that in mind, if we re-examine the story of Quintus Cicero being forced to rest by his grateful soldiers who appreciate his exertions on their behalf... It's possible that the soldiers really just wanted to get him out of their hair, right? They're veteran soldiers. They know what they're doing. He's Quintus Cicero. He's not a great soldier. He's not particularly skilled or experienced in army life, and he's trying to help, and they appreciate it, and he's their commander, so they show him respect. But at the same time, they need to get him out of their hair, so they say, Quintus, why don't you just go rest for a while? We really appreciate it, but we know you're sick, so go up, rest up, feel better. We'll take care of the the constructions on the parapets. Don't worry. But getting back to the siege, the Gallic commanders that are facing off against Quintus now see that their initial attempts to storm the camp have failed, and so they ask for a parley with Quintus, which Quintus duly grants. And at this parley, the Gallic leaders give Quintus the same song and dance they had given to Cada and to Sabinus. They tell him that Germans have crossed the Rhine, that all the Roman camps around Gaul are under attack and wouldn't be able to come to Quintus' aid. However, just like with Sabinus and Cotta, they were willing to allow Quintus's legion to leave their territory free of harm. Now, keep in mind, Quintus does not know at this point what happened to Cotta and Sabinus. He doesn't know that they were tricked this way. But Quintus, to his credit though he may not be a military man, listens to all of this and then essentially tells the Gauls to go kick rocks. Quintus is not buying this. In fact, he flips the script on the Gauls completely and basically hands him an Uno reverse card. He tells him that the Romans don't accept terms from armed enemies. But if the Gauls lay down their weapons, he would provide them with assistance in surrendering to Caesar. And he was hopeful that Caesar, being a fair person, would give them fair terms. Now, this, as you would imagine, is not at all what the Nervii Coalition had expected. They expected Quintus to be tricked, just like Sabinus and Cata had been. They expected him to leave camp and be ambushed. Quintus, now demanding their surrender, takes them off guard. And so the parley breaks up, and the siege continues the Belgic Coalition now employs a new tactic altogether. They now begin to circumvallate the Roman camp, building a 9-foot rampart and digging a 15-foot-wide ditch around the Roman camp. Now this was wholly new behavior for Gallic tribes. In fact, they had learned these tactics from fighting Caesar and from working with Caesar. Keep in mind that various times throughout the Gallic Wars, different tribes have worked alongside Caesar or have fought against him, so they have learned from doing both. And Caesar even says that these Gallic tribes had Roman prisoners hidden, directing them on how to construct these fortifications. So not only had they learned from fighting with and against the Romans, but they had Roman prisoners telling them how to dig these fortifications. The issue the Gauls run into, though, is that they lack they required tools to dig these kinds of ditches and build these ramparts. So Caesar in the commentaries paints a rather comical image of the Gallic warriors cutting slices of earth away with their swords and carrying the dirt with their hands or with their cloaks. But despite these crude and unsophisticated methods, the Gauls are able to complete their task in only 3 hours and soon have their Roman camp surrounded by a rampart that is 9 feet tall and a ditch that is 15 feet wide. But the Gauls aren't finished there. Over the next few days, they begin building siege towers, siege hooks, shelters. And again, all of these things Caesar says were taught to them by Roman prisoners. This is kind of the Roman worst nightmare, having their own prisoners teach the Gauls their tricks. Now, days go by, and eventually the seventh day of the siege comes around, and the seventh day of the siege is the hardest for the Romans. On that seventh day, a stormy wind blows up, Caesar says, and the Gauls take advantage of this wind by using slings to launch heated balls of clay, along with burning darts over the Roman walls. Now, these hot, burning objects land on the thatched cabins that the Roman soldiers use in the winter quarters. And as you would imagine, the thatch on these cabins' roofs catches fire, the wind is howling, and the fire soon spreads throughout the entire camp and it becomes an inferno. Seeing this, the Gauls then give a great cheer and charge the Roman camp. This time, though, the Gauls are prepared and they come forward with siege towers and ladders and shelters. Caesar says that everywhere the Roman soldiers were being scorched by flames and hit by cascades of missiles. Meanwhile, all of the Roman soldiers' property was being turned to ashes. Now, we saw in our last episode what happened when the baggage train of the rookie 14th legion was abandoned. The legion, to put it mildly, lost discipline and went wild. Well, we aren't told the number of Quintus's legion, but it would seem that they were a more experienced or at least more disciplined legion. Caesar says not only does this legion not abandon their post on the ramparts, they don't even look back to check on their burning stuff. That's incredible discipline. To have all of your earthly possessions and your home burning behind you and to not turn your back on the wall. That is just a different kind of discipline. And a kind of discipline that the legion of Coddus and Sabinus wholly lacked. Now, despite the hits the Romans are taking on the seventh day of the siege, make no mistake, they are giving as good as they get. The Gauls at this point have gathered in a mass at the base of the Roman ramparts. And the Gauls are packed here so tightly together that the Gallic soldiers in the front of the mass can't retreat or maneuver if they need to. Meanwhile, the Roman soldiers are on top of the rampart, They have the advantage of the high ground and full room to maneuver. So when the Romans begin killing the massed Gauls from above, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The Gauls in the front of the line are unable to retreat. They're being pushed against the Roman walls by the swarm of humanity behind them. And as a result, a large number of Gauls are wounded and killed this way. Of course, the Gauls do have numbers on their side, though, so the fighting rages on. And at one point in the battle, there is even a lull in the fire, and a Gallic siege tower is pushed up against the Roman walls. Now, the Roman centurions in charge of that portion of the wall actually backed their men up to give space for the Gauls to come out onto the wall and fight the Romans. The centurions even begin baiting the Gauls in the siege tower, telling them to enter if they wished. Now, the Gauls were intimidated by this show of bravado and so refused to advance onto the Roman rampart. The Romans then begin to throw stones at them from all angles, and these stones send the Gauls tumbling down out of the tower, and the tower is then set on fire. Now, also on this seventh day of fighting, the same day that the fire is raging in the Roman camp and the Gauls are attacking the siege towers, Caesar tells us the story It's really a famous story of two centurions. The first is a man named Titus Pullo, and the second a man named Lucius Verinus. Now, if you are a fan of the HBO show Rome, these names should sound familiar to you. They are, of course, the names of the two main characters in that show who are soldiers in Caesar's army. And those characters' names in the show are actually lifted from this story in the Gallic commentaries. Titus Pulo and Lucius Varinus, according to Caesar, were both men of great courage. And both of them were even close to reaching the senior ranks, Caesar says. But more importantly, Pulo and Varinus are fierce rivals. In fact, they have an ongoing competition with each other. They're always trying to compete to see who could gain the most important posts each year, and we're always looking to outdo each other in courage. Now, this is something that the Romans at home, especially the senators, would have gotten a kick out of. You see, Roman senators are constantly locked in rivalries and feuds for top positions. So you can imagine they would have gotten a kick out of this idea of mid-level officers in the Roman army on the fringes of the known world, similarly locked into rivalries trying to attain positions. They would have found this relatable, funny, and maybe even a little bit touching. Well, on this seventh day of the siege, when the battle was at its height, Pulo shouts to Varinus, "Why are you hesitating, Varinus? What chance are you waiting for of winning praise for your bravery? This day will decide the contest between us." Pulo then charges out to attack the Gauls, where the Gauls' ranks were at their most dense. Meanwhile, Varinus sees this and hears Pulo's words and doesn't want Pulo to get all the glory, so he follows Pulo out of the camp, and Caesar adds that Varinus was afraid of what other men would think of him if he didn't, so a little peer pressure always helps. Pulo, having left first, of course, reaches the Gauls first, and a Gaul actually steps out of the line of Gauls to meet Pulo and charges him, Pulo takes out his spear and throws it at the Gaul, and as Caesar puts it, transfixes the Gaul, who is knocked senseless by the blow. The line of Gauls then move up to cover their now unconscious comrade with their shields, and they hurl their weapons at Pulo. This happens so quick the Gauls moving up and covering their comrade and throwing their own weapons at Pulo that Pulo doesn't even have time to retreat. Pulo has his shield pierced and a dart sticks in his sword belt, which somehow prevents him from drawing out his sword easily. And as Pulo is struggling to pull his sword out, the Gauls begin to surround him. And right when things look at their gravest for Pulo, his great rival Verenus comes to his rescue, And the Gauls then forget about Pulo, who Caesar says they think is now dead from the dart that hit him in the belt, and they focus their attention instead on Varinus. Now Varinus, fighting with his sword, kills one Gaul and drives the rest of them away. Apparently, they realize that he was a superior fighter to them. Varinus then chases them, but as he chases them, he falls into a hollow or a hole in the ground. And the Gauls, seeing this, then turn back and begin to surround Varinus. So now it's Varinus who's in trouble. And just when things look at their most dire for Varinus, his great rival, Pulo, now returns the favor and comes to his rescue. Now, fighting side by side, Pulo and Varinus kill several of the Gauls and then return to the Roman camp to great acclaim from their fellow Romans. And on this whole story, Julius Caesar says, Quote, Thus fortune played with them both in their rivalry and struggle, so that despite their enmity, each helped and saved the other, and it was impossible to decide which should be considered the braver of the two. Quote. Now, at some point after this, the Romans are eventually able to repel the attack on that seventh day, and so the siege continues. In fact, it becomes more and more grim with each day that passes for the Romans. At this point, so many of the Roman soldiers have become wounded that the task of defending the camp has fallen only to a handful of men. Meanwhile, Quintus Cicero, not sitting on his hands, is sending out messenger after messenger in the hope that one of them can find a way through the enemy Gallic lines and reach Caesar to bring them help. But none of these messengers make it through. And some were even caught and then tortured and killed in front of the Roman camp, where all the Roman camp can see it happening. In doing this, the Gauls are, of course, employing the age-old tactic of psychological warfare. So at this point, things are looking desperate for Quintus, Cicero, and his legion. So, in desperation, Quintus looks to an unusual ally for help. At the start of this whole siege, a Nervian nobleman had defected from his own side to the side of the Romans, into Quintus Cicero's side. And since that time, Caesar doesn't say how, but somehow this Nervian nobleman had apparently proved his loyalty to Quintus, and so Quintus approaches this Nervian nobleman and asks him for help. This Nervian nobleman then bribes one of his own slaves with the promise of freedom and large rewards to convince the enslaved man to attempt to make it through the enemy lines to Caesar. This is a big ask, right? Because you're asking somebody to go through the enemy lines when they just saw a number of people try it before them who got caught, were then tortured in front of the entire camp and killed, and now you're asking somebody else to do it again, right? That's a big ask. But this enslaved man, seeing the opportunity of his lifetime, accepts the mission with the promise of freedom and riches being dangled before him. Now, keep in mind that this enslaved man was Gallic, and so he's able to sneak out of the Roman camp and into the Gallic camp and mingle freely with the Gauls there without arousing suspicion amongst them. Meanwhile, before this Gallic enslaved man had left the Roman camp, he had tied a letter from Quintus Cicero to Caesar to his spear. That way it would stay hidden from the other Gauls. And by freely mingling with the enemy lines and by speaking their language and dressing like them and knowing their customs, this man was able to make his way through the Gallic lines all the way to Caesar. Caesar, meanwhile, hasn't left for his provinces, as was his usual custom. Typically, he would leave for his provinces to go oversee them as governor during the winter. This time, because he had divided his troops in Gaul, he was nervous about their well-being, so he had lingered in Gaul for longer than he usually would. So at the time that this messenger reaches Caesar, Caesar's still lingering at the Gallic town of Samarobriva, which is modern-day Amiens. I hope I'm pronouncing that French name correctly. And when Caesar receives the message from the Gallic messenger, it's late evening by that point. And just like Quintus Cicero earlier in our story, it's now Caesar's turn to be hit by a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky. At this point, Caesar is oblivious to the rebellion that's going on around him. He hasn't a clue. Now he gets this dispatch from Quintus, not only telling him of Quintus's own legion's dire straits, but probably giving Caesar some inkling about the fate of Sabinus and Cata. Now, this is one of those cases that is very relatable to today. I mean, I'm sure we've all received emails or calls from work at some point letting us know that some emergency has broken out and it may or may not be our fault, And it requires us to just drop what we're doing and solve the emergency now. And if something similar like this has happened to you at some point in your life, and if it hasn't, it probably will, you know the amount of anxiety that that communication can give you. Whether it's a call or an email or whatever it is, the way you find out about it certainly causes that initial feeling of unease. Like, uh uh-oh, did I screw up? Did I let something terrible happen? So imagine how Caesar is now feeling just having learned that two of his beloved legions might be wiped out. All of these legions and every single soldier in them are Caesar's responsibility. And if they are being ambushed and killed deep in Gallic forests by the Gauls, that is Caesar's fault. He would feel personally responsible for that. Now, I say that Caesar probably felt some anxiety about this because it's only human. But that doesn't mean that Caesar froze. Instead, Caesar launches into immediate and furious action. And in that way, if there was one person in the world you wanted your SOS message to get out to, it would be Caesar. But even still, Caesar has a problem. You see, at Samarobriva, he only has one legion with him. And this legion is being used to guard the main baggage train of the army. And the main baggage train contains the army's records, their pay chests, their supplies of grain brought in from all over Gaul, and hundreds of Gallic hostages that they've taken. So as much as Caesar would like to, he can't just take this one legion and leave to go help Quintus. If he did this, the unguarded baggage train would just be an irresistible target to the Gauls, And if the Gauls captured it, the propaganda value of having captured Caesar's main baggage train would be huge and rebellion would sweep the land. So instead of immediately leaving as Caesar would like to, he instead sends a messenger to Marcus Crassus, the son of Caesar's political ally in Rome, who in our previous episode just left Rome and got cursed on his way to Parthia. Young Crassus is told to take his legion in March 25 Roman miles to Samarobriva to relieve Caesar with all haste, and Young Crassus receives this messenger and departs with his legion at midnight. Always keeping busy, Caesar continues to gather forces. He next sends a messenger to his legate, Gaius Fabius, telling Fabius to take his legion and meet up with Caesar on the march to relieve Quintus. Next, Caesar sends a messenger to his right-hand man, Titus Labienus, telling him to march into the territory of the Nervii, where Quintus is, if possible. He gives Labienus a lot of discretion here to decide on what to do himself, but says, if it's possible, come to the territory of the Nervii. And the final thing Caesar does while waiting on young Crassus is to scramble together a force of 400 Gallic cavalry to accompany his force. Now, by mid-morning the next day, the leading elements of Crassus's force arrive at Samarobriva and tell Caesar that young Crassus is not far behind. When he arrives, Caesar puts young Crassus in charge of the baggage train, and Caesar himself, along with his legion, sets out at his typical breakneck pace to save Quintus Cicero and his men. And in his first day, which, remember, is a partial day because Caesar had to wait for young Crassus to arrive, Caesar and his men cover 20 miles. And on the march, Fabius does eventually meet up with Caesar despite being late. So now Caesar has two legions or a little bit more than 7,000 men. So this is good news. His numbers are increasing. He's still far outnumbered. But then bad news comes from Labienus, that Labienus and his legion are unable to join Caesar. Labienus says that the Treveri army has gathered and made camp only three miles from Labienus's Roman camp. And Labienus, by this time, has also received the survivors of the ambush on the 14th legion that happened in our last episode. And so he gives Caesar a full account of that legion being destroyed. Caesar, after learning of this news from Labienus, is so upset. He takes an oath not to shave or to cut his hair until he has avenged his fallen legion. This was a particularly poignant personal sacrifice for Caesar, considering that Caesar always took great care of his personal appearance. Suetonius even tells us that Caesar was charged by others probably enemies with plucking his hairs with tweezers and it's unclear if this is facial hair or body hair or both but i think you get the picture caesar does not like to have overgrown hair he likes to look perfect at all times and here he is growing out his hair and his beard until he has avenged the fallen legion now caesar agrees with his right-hand man labianus's reasoning for not leaving He says that if Labienus were to move, it would embolden the Treveri to attack because they would think that Labienus was fleeing the scene. But despite this, Labienus not joining up with Caesar puts him in a bind because he now only has two legions or roughly 7,000 men with which to relieve Quintus Cicero with. So seeing that Caesar would not have numbers on his side, as is so often the case with him, Caesar decides at speed must be his best ally. So Caesar races for the territory of the Nervii, force-marching his 7,000 men. His hope is to make it to Quintus and his legion before they fall to the Gauls or surrender to them out of desperation. And as Caesar gets near to Quintus's camp, he manages to convince a Gallic cavalryman to deliver a message to Quintus. And he does this, as you would imagine, by giving the Gallic cavalrymen a large bribe. (laughs) Now, this man was given a message to deliver to Quintus along with a throwing spear. And this message was written in Greek with the idea being the Gauls would not be able to understand it if they found it. And the message basically told Quintus to hold on just a little bit longer and that Caesar was on his way to rescue him. Now, as you might expect, the Gallic messenger was not able to get into the Roman camp. And so instead, he tied the message that he had onto the spear and threw it at the Roman camp. Now, the issue with this, though, is that the spear, rather than hitting the ground inside the Roman camp where somebody would stumble across it and go to use it and see, oh, wow, there's a message written on here. Instead, the spear sticks into the side of one of the Roman towers And for two days, the siege rages on, and no one notices the spear sticking out of the tower. Finally, on the third day, the spear was noticed, and somebody brings it to Quintus. Quintus reads the message, then assembles his troops and reads the letter out loud to them. The Romans cheer, their salvation is at hand. And shortly after that, they see smoke in the distance. And then all doubts in their minds vanish. The legions are on their way, they are marching, and they are setting fire to Gallic property as they march. Now, of course, the Nervii scouts soon alert their leaders to Caesar's approach, and so the Nervii abandon their siege of Quintus Cicero's camp and march all 60,000 of their men, or however many they actually had, to confront Caesar and his mere 7,000-man army. And that is where we will end our episode today with the Nervii marching to face Caesar, who will be way outnumbered. In our next episode, Caesar has rescued Quintus, but he now has the full force of the Belgic coalition bearing down upon him. Outnumbered by a wide margin, Caesar will have to be clever if he's going to find a way to even the odds. Before we go, let me just say thank you to all of our patrons. As always, this podcast would not be possible without you, so thank you so much, and if you want to be a patron of this podcast, you can find the link to Patreon in the description of every single episode, and you can choose an amount to donate per month of your choosing. Now, if subscribing to the March of History Monthly on Patreon doesn't work for you, we also have a PayPal account. PayPal has the great advantage of allowing you to make a one-time donation, So if, say, you've listened to 50 episodes so far and you want to give a contribution because you enjoy the content, you can do that. Or if you listen to just this episode now and you want to contribute something to help the March of History, you can go ahead and click the PayPal link and donate, say, a dollar to help out the show. If every March of History listener donated just a dollar per episode, it would go a very long way to funding the March of History. That is it. I thank you all for listening. And I will talk to you on episode 54 of the March of History.